0: Hello, everyone. I'm Daz, and welcome to American Civil War and UK History Podcast. This presentation is available as a video on YouTube and as a podcast from wherever you get your podcast from. And we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And most uh, recently, I joined TikTok, so I took the plunge up with the kids. Yeah, so the Unfiltered Historian team as well, and part of them. So um, you will find all the links below in the description via Linktree. So joining me today is Mark Turnbull. And Mark is a historian and an author of a series of English Civil War books, which we will discuss at the end. Um, But today we are going to be discussing a very important event in British history, and that is the trial and execution of King Charles I. So, firstly, welcome, Mark. How are you, Darren? Um, so could you please give us a quick overview of the British civil wars please to paint the picture.
1: Yes yes so um so that's a a, a big where where do I start really but uh, I'll try and put it into a potted history for you. Um so the road to war itself was a long one. Um the catalyst I think was Ireland uh, which erupts in 1641 with a Catholic rebellion. So the issue is that the army that's needed to restore order uh, is legally controlled by the King and Parliament naturally fear that. Uh, So England breaks into civil war from early 1642. So so again, generalizing, Charles is strongest in the North, Wales, the Southwest, uh, Parliament in the East, London and Southeast. The Midlands is much more fluid, that's fought over uh, quite a lot. Uh, Charles, I think, loses a lot of opportunities. He is too idealistic, lacks the ruthlessness. Uh, For example, uh, he refuses to let his generals attack London uh, when he has the chance. Uh, He doesn't believe in victory by such a conquest. Um, He's sending his own doctor to the bedside of one of his greatest enemies. Um, He's refusing to storm Gloucester in 1643 because he's haunted by the losses incurred at Bristol. But by 1643, the Royalists looked to be in the ascendancy, nevertheless, and his nephew, Prince Rupert is undefeated. The biggest change comes in January 1644, and that is when Scotland enters the war. So after Parliament reach out and make an agreement that involves establishing Presbyterianism in England, um, the Scots join in an alliance. So Charles, for his part, is trying to bring over English troops back from Ireland to support his cause. Um, But as the Scots take the north, gradually the weight of numbers, the loss of wealth, loss of fortresses, towns, resources, that all begins to tell. Um, There's one glimmer of hope in in this late stage, uh, and, and that is despite the setbacks in England, um, there's the spectacular Marquess of Montrose and Alasdair McCullough. Uh, They take Scotland briefly for the king in August 1645. Um, but with Montrose's defeat in September, that's it. Um, it's a slippery slope to military defeat. And Charles has few choices left um, as Oxford, his headquarters, is encircled. Uh, he can either surrender to Parliament's new model army, to the scottish army he can flee the country altogether so denmark and france are options uh, or, he, or he can attempt to go to london believe it or not and and, and this was seriously considered uh, to appear in london in person to negotiate with parliament in the hope that uh, that might broker a good deal so so charles rides out of oxford in the early hours of april 1646 uh, he's dressed as a servant he's had his hair and beard cut he's only got two companions Governor shouts behind him, farewell Harry, Uh, that's that's his code name, Uh, and they head to London. But then they turn as if in slightly somewhat confusion, um, you know, uncertain about whether to go to London in actual fact or whether to turn north and, you know, go to the Scots. There's also the port of King's Lynn that could take him uh, to Scotland itself or, or one of those other countries. They end up trying to cut each other's hair uh, with knives, burning papers, arouse a lot of suspicion. Um, And in the end, he chooses the Scots. Uh, So, the reason he chooses the Scots, um, uh, you know, outside of Newark, is because France has been trying to broker a deal with Scotland on the king's behalf. Um, They've been trying to, well, nobody, least of all France, wants to see a, a, a victorious strong Puritan parliament. Um, So yeah, France tried to broker a deal with the King and the Scots. Um, The Scots for their part seem to encourage this. Uh, And as soon as Charles arrives at the Scottish HQ, uh, a lot of what he understood is reneged upon. So uh, he's left in a bit of a position.
0: OK, so, yeah, um, it's the first time I've heard about him actually thinking about going to London. So what was the idea behind that? Was he going to broker, try and broker some kind of uh, a deal with the parliament?
1: Yeah, I, I think the the thing that was that was in his mind, I think, was that if he actually turned up, that potentially would bring a lot of moderates to his side. Um, and, he, and he did have a lot of moderate support. Um so, yeah, I think his pre- he was probably banking on his presence, actually turning the tide and managing to convince people that he had returned to London and his parliament. I mean, that, that, throughout the war, there was a lot of calls by parliament and by the city of London itself that, that the king should return to his parliament, you know, as, as if he'd abandoned them and left. So, yeah, by doing that, it's almost sort of calling the bluff of those leaders I mean, the Queen was dead against it. The Queen said you should not go back to London at all unless you're at the head of an army. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes.
0: Okay, so he goes up to Scotland. So please explain how he ends up in the hands of Parliament, because he does in the end, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, well, so so in a nutshell, so he actually goes to Newark uh, and the Scots are currently besieging Newark at that time in in April forty six. Um, so the king surrenders to the Scottish army, obviously thinking that he's going to get the best deal from the Scots. Um, the Scots themselves, once they have the king um, and eventually, you know, Charles orders as a sign of good faith, he orders a lot of his remaining uh, fortresses to surrender, including Newark. Uh, and the Scots then withdraw north uh, to Newcastle with the king. Uh and at that point, that's when there's a bit of a, a situation, you know, obviously Parliament um, are a bit wary of the fact that the Scots have the king, um, you know, a bit of a trump card. Uh, and then to got a long story short, so they do a deal, they pay the Scots off. Um, they, they don't necessarily pay for the king. Uh, they, they pay the Scots off for their support and say, well, the war's over now. Um, you know, you, you can go back to Scotland, give us the king. Um, and the Scots do that, so £400,000 in total um, paid in installments, and uh, the Scots gradually withdraw, and the King is taken into parliamentary custody so so that they are there's commissioners from Parliament that, that take him into custody, uh, and then eventually, so he never makes it to London because uh, the, the army move in, so you, you then have the the, the parliamentarian side is such splitting down the middle into um, what you call independence and Presbyterians, and, and it's the the Presbyterians are the ones that are, are still more in favour with the Scots and with the Royalists. Um, you know they they're looking for a bit of a restoration of Charles. You know that's their goal still. Whereas the Independents are a little bit more hardline. Um, you know not necessarily want just a, a continuation um, of, of what was currently there. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so we, yeah, sorry. yeah, sorry. So, sorry. so the army take, take charge of Charles M. basically. And then, so, so where's Cromwell stand in the middle of all this?
1: Well, that, that's a question and a half, to be honest, because mm. a lot of the time nobody knows where Cromwell stands. I think he's covered his tracks very well through the civil war. Um, a lot of the time Cromwell's in the shadows, uh, his views have not been committed to paper or not survived at least, um, there's other people doing that sort of work for him, um, I mean there's no doubt at all that Cromwell was involved, um, what we won't know unless some document surfaces is how much, uh, but certainly that the people around Cromwell, you know, were, were, were pushing for the army to sort of get the king and, and then that backs up the independent cause a little bit. Cause you know, both parliament in, in itself started to, to sort of withdraw into some infighting really oh, right. you know, now that the war's at an end, what do we do? What is the outcome that everybody wants? um Yeah. So, so they end up, they end up. So, so
0: what is their agenda though, by grabbing the king, the army, have they got an agenda behind that? They just want to push yeah. their views across or
1: yeah, I mean, there's there's the agenda, the political side of things, where one side wants a more radical approach to a peace, you know, in a settlement. Um, the other wants a more traditional approach. Um, you know, the king, the king had already given up quite a few of his prerogative powers in 1641 before the war. Um, the, the the remaining, uh, the key remaining powers that. Um, they want from him is the control of the militia uh, and then reform of the church so I think both sides want to use the king uh, and, and even the Scots as well you know even though the Scots have withdrawn here you know they still uh, harbor the desire to have Presbyterianism established in England you know and, and which through whichever means possible whether that's a deal with the king um, you know so so the king is kind of the in the centre of all of this. Uh, and he knows that as well, you know, so he, he's playing them off, they're playing him off.
0: Yeah. Um, so he is obviously taken captive and he's held at Hampton Court. So tell us a little bit about his time at Hampton Court, please.
1: Yeah, well, so Hampton Court, I think in, in, the, in the scheme of what was to come, um, He was dealt fairly uh, well by the army. So, uh, you know, at the point when he does escape Hampton Court, uh, he actually writes a letter to thank um, the commander for for how he's dealt with him. Um, But nevertheless, I think for the king, the fact that he's held at Hampton Court by the army, um, there's that element of duress, you know, so the king is conscious that he is under guard. Um, So anything, you know, that, that potentially is agreed could carry that clause um, that it wasn't freely given so, that, so the king uh, obviously is reacting against this at the at this time as well you've got the putney debates going on so so by that time uh, the new model army um had severely divided um so parliament on the one hand were approaching the king they were the legal representatives of the the country um pro- proposing peace terms to the king He also had the new model army themselves who were proposing their own terms. So no, no, no sort of legal basis there, but they were proposing their own terms, which were a lot more favourable than Parliament's. Um, And then the Scots as well were were in constant touch with Charles. Um, Again, that sort of vying for um, a victorious peace, if you like, you know, the war is over, um, but now it's the war for the peace. Um, of the kingdom, so yeah. So Charles, Charles, um, you know, has his he he visits his children uh, for the first time. So we see some of his children that were held in London for most of the war. Um, they stay with him at Hampton Court. Um, you know, there, there's an incident where he complains to the governor of Hampton Court, uh, Edward Whaley, about the soldiers outside the bedroom keeping his daughter awake, and, and you know, asking for them to be withdrawn uh you know, so it, all in all, it wasn't a bad time. However, outside of that bubble, as I said, the, the, the new model army are almost imploding. So in London, the Putney debates, this is where the levelers who want universal male suffrage, uh, they want the abolition of the House of Lords. Um, You know, some sections of them want the king to be put on trial. Uh you've got those elements who, who are putting forward um, these options to the army high command, so Gen, uh, Fairfax, Cromwell, Ireton, uh, The army high command don't want to entertain that, and this is probably one of the myths about the Civil War, that parliament, that, that parliament's cause, fought for democracy they didn't nobody was fighting for democracy there bar the levelers Um, and the levelers were were very much part of parliament so they you know they weren't fighting for that democracy they were just pushing it as much as they possibly could in manifestos Um, so Fairfax Cromwell I didn't want universal male suffrage they firmly believed that uh, only men with uh, property a certain value of property should have a say in government um, and the levelers were going up against that and and really quite uh, uh, successfully to the point where they did have the army leaders around a table um, to talk about you know what they wanted the end settlement to be the The curious thing with Charles at Hampton Court is that so Edward Whaley presents Charles with a letter from Cromwell, uh, and the letter makes reference. To threats to Charles's life, um, and you know whether whether that was deliberately done, Cromwell penning that letter and then really showing that to the king, you know you can speculate. But certainly, what happened at that point was that Charles um, started to get a little bit concerned about his own safety possibly looked for a a reason to escape this army confinement uh, and escaped from Hampton Court. Um, For the the Putney debates and for the army leaders, this was great news uh, because immediately those debates about the uh, future and the, the, the peace and the settlement of the kingdom were brought to an end. So all of the troublesome levelers um were were brought back into the fold because uh, they they had to then join uh, and fight against that common threat which is that the king was on the loose and, and what would happen uh so it was very very um, opportunist for uh for the army grandees mm-hmm. so like
0: you said he escapes and he ends up in the isle of wight or on the isle of wight sorry um yeah i just want to go back for a second there so basically um because you've explained it so well um that they fought this war and actual fact they didn't know what they wanted at the end of it did they really they just sort of they're, they're making it up as they go along they don't know what they want to do do they really they've won the war and they don't actually really know what they
1: want to do i i think um i think it things changed as it went along i think you know i think um what they perhaps thought might might be the outcome at the start you know as the years went by i think people realized that that couldn't be the outcome any longer you know and and i think what again something that's often overlooked here is that both sides so we talk about divine right and that charles you know was stubborn and uh thought that he should be the one that to govern the country and and he was answerable to nobody but God. But at the same time, there's a fine line between divine right, in my opinion, and um, the parliamentarian leaders who were equally, equally stubborn in their beliefs um, and equally firm that God was on their side, you know, and, and believed and supported what they wanted, you know. So you've got both sides that really can't back down.
0: Mm. so he does escape again sorry we'll go back to that so how does he escape um because he's got this free reign is not he at hampton court so it's made quite easy for him from the way i understand it
1: well yeah and that's another thing about why i why i do feel that there was more to his escape than meets the eye because so so the king so basically what he does he spends quite a lot of time writing letters um before uh, his evening meal and um this particular evening, um, you know, and when the king does withdraw into that uh, inner chamber to write the letters, you know, no, nobody disturbs him, um, and and his servants uh, uh, don't follow him in there. And the the governor initially, when the king doesn't turn up isn't particularly uh, perturbed by that, um, it's only as as time presses on uh, that that he. Goes to the king's rooms and, and asks for the door to be opened. Uh, the servants, you know, kind of push back and say, no, uh, you can't possibly do that, you know, you can't disturb the king. Um, and the governor is content as the hours go by to just wait without any sign that the king is inside, uh, no noise. Um, and, and it's several hours before he orders the door to be opened um conveniently by that time the king is long gone uh to find the 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 king's greyhound in the corner whimpering and no king but there is a letter there for the governor as i say thanking him for uh his kindness
0: so it's such an interesting story it really is um so um yeah so he ends up down in in in, or on the south coast of england he ends up going to the isle of wight what his is his plan when he gets to the isle of wight
1: well I i think this is where the king hasn't got a plan um, so, so, they're still not sure why on earth he ends up um, going to the Isle of Wight. So, I think Charles, so he goes to the, the house of a supporter, um, probably to, to make a decision on where, uh, where he's going to go. Um, and one of his closest supporters, one of those um, men who had left, one of the two men that had left Oxford with him um, back in 1646, he turns up. Um, and says oh, I've brought somebody here um, it's Robert Hammond the governor of the Isle of Wight um, we you know he, he'll be a, a supportive I'm sure you know and perhaps the Isle of Wight's a good place uh, if, I'm not sure who was more surprised Charles or Hammond um, so Hammond really was quite shocked to realize that the king uh, was here you know the king who'd escaped um, had come to him. And the king w- was equally um, upset by the, the prospect as well. So he said to Jack Ashburnham, um, who had brought Hammond, Oh Jack, thou hast undone me. Um, and there was no going back. So I think both parties knew. The king knew that now that his whereabouts were discovered, he'd have to go over to the Isle of Wight. Um, Hammond, as reluctantly as he, as he was to, to have the king uh, in his custody, couldn't do anything more but, but agree. And, and again, the, the other aspect to this is for the army leaders, the Isle of Wight was the best possible choice for them. So if they, you know, f- for the arm for the army, having possession of Charles opened up a bit of an embarrassment when Charles wasn't accepting their proposals. So it left them with control of the king. And then an increasingly uh, divided army under their command to have the king out of their hair was much better. But to have him on the Isle of Wight where um, where he could be easily held, you know, and and, uh, monitored was was perfect. You know, he wasn't at large in in the country itself. OK, so he was in,
0: obviously in prison. And again, this guy's in an awkward position because he's a Parliament supporter, isn't he? So he can't now turn around and let Charles slip away because he would be to blame, wouldn't he?
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and oh, Robert Hammond, uh, yeah. I mean, pleaded, I mean, <laughs> pleaded with Parliament many times to say, you know, let me give up this charge. I, I don't want this responsibility. Uh, and every time he was told, no. hmm.
0: So, okay, he's put into custody in, in uh, a castle that's on uh, the Isle of Wight called uh, Carisbrook Castle. Uh, tell us about his time there.
1: Yeah. Excuse me. That's right. Yeah, so so Carisbrook, I don't think it's a particularly appealing place for Charles. Um, I mean, they, they do build a ball and green for him and, you know, eventually... Um, he he gets visits from a certain Jane Warwood who according to a letter that was unearthed some years ago appears to have have been quite intimate with the king Um, but in Carisbrook that's where he attempts to make the best of his situation Uh, he attempts to spin out time he still has significant support despite the um, military defeat in the war Uh, he knows Hammond so Hammond isn't a stranger Um, so Hammond's uh, relatives, you know, you've got one of them, which who is a, an officer in the New Model Army, the other who is Charles's chaplain. Um, so so he does know Hammond. Um, the Scots themselves begin to realise that the that Parliament and the New Model Army are starting to get a little bit more militant, um, more under the control of that independent faction. Um, and they they start to approach the king um at Carisbrooke uh with with an out and out offer to support his restoration to the throne um so yeah so as as I say, the king now has three factions approaching him um I think many Puritans had never been keen on adopting Scottish Presbyterianism anyway uh so, yeah, so it's at Carisbrook that a group of Scots called the Engagers um, approach Charles and offer that military support. A deal is signed. So Charles agrees with them. Uh, the document that he signs is sealed in lead and buried at Carisbrook. Uh, and that, I think, is, again, another turning point. Um, so that's the 26th of December 1647 I think that was a big mistake in a way because uh, that that opened up a second war yeah so that, that starts uh, the
0: second civil war then basically doesn't it because the English civil wars or the British civil wars as I like to call it now because that's what it is
1: is yeah. free wars isn't it it's you know that's it yeah war of the three kingdoms yeah that's yeah. it so, And, and it, it, it's from that moment that that, that label man of blood that's when it frequently gets attached because mm-hmm. primarily that second civil war.
0: And this really annoys and upsets parliament at this stage and the army, the new model army.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think it upsets the army more um, because the army, uh, you know, the parliament themselves are predominantly controlled by the Presbyterians. And, and again, these are the people who would happily see an accommodation with Charles you know, n- not to sell out their principles, you know, they still have the militia and the church that they want to reform. Um, but they, they will be more likely to see a more, tr- more of a traditional outcome than the New Bodden Army, for example. Mm-hmm. So why is at Carisbrook? I understand there is
0: another attempt to escape. And this is actually quite a funny story. Not for Charles, obviously. Could you tell us a little bit about this?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So, so I think, I think, to be honest, I think Carisbrook, it, it's a bit of an embarrassing situation for the king. I mean, he's, you know, the divinely appointed king of three kingdoms. And he does end up playing cat and mouse with Robert Hammond. Um, you know, he's brought to that point where even just smuggling letters out is, is a small victory. Um, so there, there are several escape attempts, as you see. The, the first one, um, ships are secured, they're laid offshore um there's acid uh, procured from london to burn through the bars of his window um so it, it all seems set uh, everybody's in place but the king doesn't go through with it so for some reason he doesn't actually leave the castle and, it, and he decides against making a move um the second attempt he actually gets stuck in the window so his body gets stuck in the window um and the the person that's waiting for him below, uh, he is he is the groan, um, that the king's stuck, uh, and, and he actually he goes back into the, the room, um, and, and then that's it. Uh, I think the king firmly has enough now of escape attempts. Okay. Um, there, there's a, a point where Hammond actually gets into the king's room, uh, when the king is you know supposedly. Uh, handling some, some some sensitive documents uh, so the king tries to throw them in the fire Hammond scrabbles to try and get them uh, there's a bit of a kerfuffle uh, Hammond says dryly I, I wasn't aware your majesty was leaving us um, but yeah at that point that's when the king thought no more escape attempts and it was a, a very conscious change in his attitude it was almost as if he realized that he isn't going to escape um, perhaps thought that god seems to have in mind a trial of faith and constancy you know and the king should Mm -hmm. stay whatever happens um and and he does accept that come what may his destiny now was to stand firm for those red line principles that he has because i think the other thing as well for for charles is that there, there were certain principles that he never uh bargained with or used or manipulated so he even said this to Parliament um, when when the army for, or just before the army took him into custody. You know he he could agree to anything that they want and then just go back on it and say it was duress. Uh, but there were certain, as I say, a red lines that he never actually um, compromised for anything. And, and it, it Carisbrook and, and as as this change in his his manner. Um, took precedence talking about november 1648 he actually pushes the boundaries um, and and almost comes to an agreement with parliament he actually makes concessions on those red line areas that he's never um pushed so far before
0: Mm -hmm. so can i just ask uh, this is probably a big what if so say what if he does escape the isle of wight and he gets across to france does he then come back with armies, do you think, and and try and take back the country? I mean, like you said, he's got the Scottish support. He could probably get the Irish support too. And
1: he would probably have support from France, wouldn't he? Yeah, well, the, the French, I mean, a little bit awkward. I don't think Charles fully trusted the French. And I, that might sound ironic because his wife, you know, you know was French. But I, I think Charles knew, and, and certainly one of his letters to the, the Queen did, um sure that he knew that the french had their own agenda as well um but I, i'm not actually sure if charles seriously considered leaving the country um that that, that was one of the aspects about carisbrook uh, and the isle of wight was that he would still be you know in england you know, or, or in one of his ki- uh, kingdoms mm-hmm. you know yeah um so I'd, i'm i'm not sure that he would would have ever left um, I think that I I think for him, again, going back to London, you know, when that opportunity in the early in the war presented itself and his army could have swept down and took London by storm. uh, He, he refused. He didn't want that sort of conquest. And I think leading a foreign army from a foreign country over, I I don't think that would have appealed. Yeah, I agree actually. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this
0: enough is enough now, isn't it? Parliament have had enough of Charles. And, and so when do the will start pushing for a trial and bringing him back to London?
1: Um, so I'm not sure if parliament do have enough of the King. Um, it, it's true that they, they cut off um, all negotiations with them. Um, but I think as we see, they reopen that um, after a while. So, I mean, I'm not sure that they, they fully have enough. It's the army that have enough. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the army step in. Um, as I say, Charles is very close to making a treaty with the parliamentarian commissioners. Um, he, he gives them uh, a lot of, you know, he pushes back his, his limits on some of those uh, red line policies and, and principles. I think parliament recognised that and they vote to accept um, what, what he's uh, given as the basis for negotiating a peaceful settlement. And it's at that point when the army realized that if this this settlement goes ahead, uh, then really there's going to be no room for any independents or, you know, Puritans mm-hmm. or any sects. Uh, levelers, you know, won't get a look in, you know, their policies won't occur. So, yeah, I think the army and, and this is the thing with it, isn't it? You know, the army faceless, you know, who, who are the army? You, you know who Charles is. you know charles personifies the entire royalist cause Mm -hmm. but who were the scots who were the army who who were parliament you know it's a difficult one
0: yeah what authority had they got you know that's yeah i see what you're saying yeah Yeah.
1: so um the
0: build-up to the trial then so he does get moved doesn't he back um i i understand he stays a little
1: while at uh, windsor is it and then gets moved to london is that correct yeah so so initially so the army so when when um parliament nearly come to that agreement the army move in they um exclude 186 mps a huge number from from parliament and arrest 45 others so that a large number excluded um you know back in the days of 1642 the king was condemned for trying, trying to try arrest mm. five um you know now you've got over 200 being excluded um and and at that point with with parliament now purged uh the army um you know the army controlled parliament um and then they take the king's person seize the king's person and take him to Hurst Castle and it's at this point that Charles does believe that he's going to be murdered in secret um you know Hurst is is just a tiny tiny little fortress um off the coast um it's very daunting you know we and as I see, he does think that he's going to be killed. And then gradually, you know, they're taken back to um, London, as you see, via Windsor. So he's again, so the army are pushing for this. It's
0: not, it's like a little bit of a military coup really, isn't it? They can't agree. Again, there's all this infighting. They can't
1: agree with each other what to do with the king. And the, obviously it, the it armies is. are pushing this, aren't they? That's it. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is a coup. Um, and, And that's the thing, you know, Charles would would never be able to deal with the army because, you know, if he ever did make an agreement with the army, then making an agreement with the power of the sword Mm. over the laws, you know, a a lawful parliament, even a a purged one, you know, is is a a major issue. So so where does Fairfax stand in all this? Because he is head of the army, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, so again, this is, this is another uh, good question. So, so Fairfax is a royalist at heart. Um, I, I, it's a difficult one because it, Fairfax sort of straddles both sides of the opinion. So, so he does recognise that something has to change. The king has to back down. He needs to be defeated. But at the same time, he really he isn't out for a radical um, solution, you know, as uh, was, was proved in the Putney debate, you know, Fairfax and Cromwell and Ayrton uh, put down the level of cause. Mm. But Fairfax isn't, you know, very good soldier, very good leader, um, but politically isn't very astute um, or, or certainly isn't as astute as some of the uh, leaders around him, you know, his subordinates. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly Cromwell is a lot more politically astute than Fairfax. Yeah. And I, I think that Cromwell actually says that as well. Well, certainly yeah. there was a pamphlet published in 1649, not long, I think, before the the king's execution, where Cromwell was supposed to have said that. Mm-hmm.
0: So Cromwell, again, is just standing in the background because he is in the art. So he's, he's split, isn't he? Because he's... Like you said, he's politically, you know, he's in parliament as well as being in the army, isn't he? So, yeah, where does he actually stand with all this as well? Because you know, we always get the picture painted that Cromwell's the one that pushes all of this. You know,
1: is he in the background, like winding it up? Yeah, I mean, that you know, I've seen a letter from from Cromwell to Fairfax uh, around November 48 where Cromwell sort of Cromwell's the one urging Fairfax and saying, you know, you know, believe believe in 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 god's will you know open your heart type of thing you know do what do what what's right almost you know there's not a particular theme to the letter but you know that that sort of that sort of encouragement i think fairfax must have been getting quite a lot you know Mm -hmm. Um, you need to be more decisive Um, we need to finish this we need to sort something out and cromwell you know he you know, from, from the last couple of years, you know, say 1647 even, Cromwell was making speeches in Parliament in favour of the King in an agreement. Um, But there, there's definitely a shift in Cromwell's position. It's often given um, that the King's intransigence was the, the cause of that. But it, as I say, it is a very difficult one with Cromwell, I find, because, you know, you can read a letter from Cromwell and, and it he's either often not at the place where the pivotal place where everything's happening, but he has a network of people around him,
0: Mm.
1: you know, and and he couldn't have been in, in any shadow of doubt about some of these major events. That's so
0: interesting. I really do. That this guy that ends up grabbing the power is not involved somehow yeah he always seems to never be there it's it's yeah yeah so interesting um so okay the rump parliament passed a bill for a formation of a high court of justice because they could not get support from the house of lords could they so explain that to us please
1: yeah so so the the ordinance for the king's um trial uh, is brought before parliament the house of lords um i think even the House of Lords, by that point, is just a tiny uh, attendance, um, but even they balk at um, what's been done, um, and probably they, you know they've heard what's been said at the Putney Debates about the abolition of the House of Lords, you know the, the calls from the Levellers, and perhaps they realise you know most of them that um, maybe things have gone too far, or you know that their end is also going to come as well with the King. Um, and they they don't approve um and they they decline the ordinance but then they adjourn for holiday so what happens is parliament uh, the house of commons um deal with the lords the same way as they dealt dealt with the king at the start of the conflict um when the king wouldn't play a ball they declared that they were the um they could pass laws without the king's assent and, and in, in effect that's what they did to the lords they decided care if they're not going to play a ball uh, we are now the supreme authority in the land Uh, we can pass laws without the lords Uh, and they went ahead with the ordinance Mm -hmm. for the
0: trial so this country is in an absolute mess at this stage isn't it if they can't you know they've completely lost order haven't they really if if the commons are deciding laws
1: then you know And, and, and the thing is here as well it's not just the commons it is a rump of the commons Con, you know appointed in effect or sanctioned by the army that's now controlling the kingdom so in effect the army does have so that nobody's so been
0: voted they've been put there by the army
1: yeah which, which is ironic when the oh. when when the commons or you know the the, the court say uh, we try you in the name of the people of england well you know lady fairfax at one point shouted out not a jot!" you know um it, it's, it, you know, not in the name of the people, Cromwell's a traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, 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 was, there was a genuine uh, point to that, you know, that you're talking about a rump of MPs who have brought the king to trial. They are not elected. You know, as such, this is just, there might have been about five years before, um, but it's just a little segment of what's left, and mm-hmm. that's certainly not representative of the people.
0: So the trial itself, um, so you you start off with three judges and 150 commissioners, um, but only, uh, sorry, when the trial begins, you only have 135 remaining. Is that through fear of reprisals from the royalists, maybe,
1: or something along them sort of lines? Um, I I think they just genuinely found that that things had gone too far. I mean, you know, you even have um, John Lilburn, the leader of the levellers. Lilburn even stands up and says, look, what happened under the king's reign is nothing compared to what's happening now, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I think a lot of men felt that you know, things had gone way too far. You know, as I say, the, the king was going to be on trial, that was unheard of. Uh, there was no legal basis. House of Lords had gone, uh, well, it hadn't gone at that point, but you know, that it had been bypassed. You've got a rump parliament, you've got an army. Control and things you know the Scots are worried about what's going to happen to them mm-hmm. after um the these pardon me these independents um win outright Ireland's worried as well you know the, the again the Catholics have always feared the Puritan uh, majority in in England's Parliament so yeah there was a lot I yeah. think of of concern about what would come afterwards um perhaps genuine feeling that they'd gone too far um yes fear of reprisals perhaps fear that you know like what the earl of manchester once said if you, you can defeat the king nine and 99 tight or nine and 90 times but at the end of it he's still king um so yeah there's a lot of different uh concerns about how how things are going Okay, so let's move on to the trial itself. So, two of the main guys that are going to be um,
0: involved in this are the Solicitor General John Cook, and we have the President of the Parliamentary Commission John Bradshaw. So, um, but Bradshaw didn't choose by choice, did he? He sort of got thrust into that position, didn't he? Um, so, what is Ch- um, so what is their role in this, and also what is Charles actually going to be charged for?
1: Okay, so well, Bradshaw, um, so. Bradshaw wasn't their first choice um, for Lord President of the court, um, but because the senior legal figures refused to take part, then naturally they, they were bound to find somebody as they went down the, the lower levels and they found Bradshaw, um, who was Chief Justice of Chester and North Wales. Um, John Cook was a lawyer. Um, so he he put the the prosecution argument Um I'd read that ironically that he he was the one that that established the right to silence in in cases. Yet the court said that um, the court were the, actually put it to the king that silence was a, a sign of his guilt if he didn't plead. So, yeah, Bradshaw Cook. Um, the king was charged with high treason. Um, he was alleged to be guilty of all the treasons, murders, rapines, burning, spoils desolations damages and mischiefs so they were quite comprehensive Mm
0: -hmm. so basically Uh, parliament didn't do anything wrong (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) yeah, that's it rapid what i tend to see is like they they basically wrapped it up in a and put it at charles's door um and and then that would close off everything that had happened Mm -hmm. to allow everybody to move forward um they list all of the battles that he was present at um you know as if to say that he's encouraged the war um it's it's ironic as well that later in the trial when the the session talk about witnesses um a lot of the witnesses give statements just that charles was present at battles or you know that he had a a, a drawn sword he wore a breastplate and backplate you know the uh, parliamentarian cannons are opening up at the king at, at edge hill so, you know, he's not going to go there without any sort of armour. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what Parliament would probably aim at was to not necessarily bring a whole host of witnesses to say that Charles ordered his troops to commit this atrocity. Because, you know, Charles didn't order troops to commit atrocities. You know, yes, there was Luton and things, but Charles was uh, not personally involved. Um more so what they wanted to do was to prove Charles guilty um, because of the actions of his uh, subordinates. Mm-hmm.
0: OK, so again, like well, So the trial had had begun. It begins in Westminster Hall, which is still there today, which you can go and visit. Um, I think you can. Well, it depends what sort of day it is. Um, Charles refused to enter a plea as he believed, obviously, in the right of King and only god could judge a king so talk us through his uh, plea hearing because there's a story that i've uh, read about where uh, something to do with his
1: cane or something like that yeah so, so this is on the first day so the 20th of january 1649 so um as you see there's 135 uh, hand-picked men that are, that are there to try him um you've got 68 of them that turn up on the 20th uh so the king is brought from St. James's Palace to Whitehall by water. So he's, he's guarded uh, with the, the soldiers in boats around him. Um, 30 officers um, accompany him into the hall. And then the, the, the names of the commissioners are read out who were present. Uh, and that's when um, Sir Thomas Fairfax or General Lord Fairfax isn't present. Lady Fairfax is reputed to shout out, you know, my husband has more wit than to be here. Um, And just before Cook reads the charge, the king uh, reaches over with his cane, which has a silver top and taps Cook on the shoulder. Um, He wants to say something. Uh, Cook ignores him. So the king taps again and the silver head drops off the cane and rolls onto the floor. So the king at that point is standing up, um, looks at the, the the head and makes no move, but nobody makes any move. Uh, the king expects that somebody would have picked that up. Uh, nobody does. So in the end, he stoops and picks that up himself, um, which is one of the more well-known anecdotes of the, the trial. Um, because it, it's almost symbolic, isn't it? That, that mm-hmm. the king has had to stoop in front of his um, accusers mm-hmm. and pick that up himself.
0: Well, can I can I just ask what the feeling is in the country at this point, of knowing of this trial that's going on? Because obviously they would have known, wouldn't they? So what is the feeling in the, you know, from the average Joe that, you know, is you know, I know the country's split still, but like you said, yeah. the army's in control of all this. So what is their feeling on this?
1: I, I don't think that the entire country would know fully what was going on um, at that point. I mean, it, it did sometimes take quite a bit of time for, for news to travel, um, but obviously like the, the key areas would know. Um, I think on the one hand, there was a feeling that people maybe didn't dare uh, speak out, you know, um, because what would happen if they did, you uh, You've got both sides here, really. And if the king comes out of this uh, and people have spoken up and supported it, <coughs> you know, then potentially that's their family marked, mm-hmm. you know. But equally, if they oppose the trial, you've got a, a very strong, victorious rump and army that, that uh, you know, yeah, so you you,
0: what would, they might you wouldn't do. say anything anyway because you'd be in trouble yourself. Yeah, I,
1: I think for the for the ordinary people, yeah, and certainly certainly mm-hmm. for you know leaders and, and, and MPs, you know the, the, there was an out, you know, the, there was um, opposition to the trial. You know, the Scots themselves. So on on that day, um, the 20, well on the twenty second actually, it was the twenty second of January. The Scots commissioners actually register their opposition to the trial. Wow. Um and you did have you know some people opposing it. But I think on the whole people were thinking, well, what will happen? You know, will will they be you know surely they can't convict a king. Um isn't it just sure? You know, is, is this just to make him scared so that he agrees something? Uh will this lead to a settlement? You no, know, I think people were just I think it was very much open game and i think people thought well actually what's the plan here Mm. how far might this go um and, and is it best to maybe speak my mind right now or see what happens okay so on the 27th of january
0: the king was found guilty of high treason and the death warrant is signed um so i've got a picture of the death warrant here actually i don't know whether that's original or not but it's pretty cool um so obviously oliver Cromwell's on there but uh, most of them on there so this is signed by 59 of the commissioners including oliver cromwell so tell us a little bit more about i mean they move so quickly here don't they i mean it goes from a guilty verdict to a couple of days later being executed you know Um, yeah it moves so quickly and 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 is that their aim just to get rid of him as quick as possible now because we've
1: gone too far uh there's a, there's a lot of debate about it you know as it stands today. So a lot of people say that it was a forecon- foregone cl- conclusion that the king would be found guilty and executed. Others say that right up until the last moment there was a chance that he might be um, either found not guilty or have a commuted sentence. but personally I, I think that it I think that we're ready to do it yeah. Um, so as you say the document itself, People have studied the document, and there's again an argument that the document was signed in two parts, uh, and that it was amended, um, and almost they didn't want to draw up a new document in case the people that had already signed it then refused to sign it again. Um, So if you look at the document, certain you know, the word and sometimes doesn't make sense. It says on the morrow, and if that was signed. I think the twenty seventh. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would mean the morrow would be the Sunday, which it w- wouldn't happen. Um, so yeah, a uh, little bit of ambiguity about when it was drawn up. Um, there's also some of these stories about how Cromwell forced one of the waverers to sign it, you know, putting the the quill into his hand, which. I think That story came out at the trial of the regicides in 1660, yeah. so a little bit iffy about whether that's right, but certainly you know, Cromwell was again, you know, there apparently flicking ink at the commissioners, you know, and um, playing a few pranks.
0: And again, that that's a that's a podcast for another day because that's another <laughs> interesting the regicide uh trials and that is very interesting, but um, so obviously he's 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 going to be executed, there's no two ways about it, and uh. Charles um, has, um, you know, an emotional farewell to his younger children, doesn't he? Before he, uh, a couple of days before, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. So so Princess Elizabeth, she's 14, uh, Prince Henry's nine. uh, They're the two children um, who had been held in London throughout the war. So Charles had only just seen them uh, after his defeat. Uh, So he met the two children for the last time. I mean, so Elizabeth is in floods of tears. I think young Henry is slightly too young to understand exactly what's going on. Um, so King raises them up from off their knees. Um, and Elizabeth wrote down afterwards um, an account of what the King had said um, and what she recalled was, he wished me not to grieve not to torment myself for him that he would be a glorious death, that he should die, it being for the laws and liberties of this land uh, and for maintaining the true Protestant religion. He told me that he'd forgiven all his enemies and hoped God would forgive them also and commanded us and the rest of my brothers and sisters to forgive them. Uh, Charles also told Elizabeth to pass the message to her mother that his thoughts had never strayed from her, that their love would be the same to the last. commanded the children to be obedient to Henrietta Maria um, and bid Elizabeth send blessings to the rest of the brothers and sisters and commend Charles to all of his friends at that point as well so the king takes young Henry on his knee uh, and says sweetheart now they will cut off thy father's head mark child what I say they will cut off my head and perhaps make thee a king but mark what I say: you must not be a king so long as your brothers Charles and James do live, for they will cut off your brothers' heads when they can catch them, and then cut off thy head too at the last. So, quite mm. a you know warning. And actually, you know Charles was on the money there because Parliament at one point do consider uh, that there or there is debate about whether to make Henry Duke of Gloucester uh, king. Uh, afterwards the the boy actually replies I'll be torn to pieces first and, and apparently that brought tears to the king's eyes mm-hmm. um, the king then dishes out the last of his jewels so you know broken jewels of the order of the garter things like that uh, not much um, kisses them both uh, takes his leave Elizabeth then very harrowing so Elizabeth breaks down again uh, the king goes back to her um, embraces her Um, and then he leaves the children um, and returns to prayer Um, but at that point the king's legs actually give way um, and that's documented um, even from the the Venetian ambassador as well so I I think it was extremely draining uh, for Charles very upsetting Um, and and I think it took it took him quite a lot to, to recover and come back from that. So much so uh, that he refused to see anyone else after that. OK, so we get to the 30th. The execution takes place
0: at the Banqueting House in Whitehall, London, which um, is a royal palace, isn't it? Um, that um, So please talk us through the events of the day. So um, I have got a picture of the Banqueting House and there is a plaque. Which I really annoyingly walked past in November and didn't realise it was there. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so talk us through the um, th- the day, please.
1: Yep. So so the morning. So in the morning, the king wakes up uh, very early, um, the thirtieth Tuesday, the thirtieth. It's uh, in James's palace, so he enters some uh, prayer and devotion. Um the he's accompanied by the bishop of or the former bishop of London because Parliament have, have abolished episcopacy. Um so the bishop of London, William Juxon, um, and one other man, um, who Thomas Herbert. So Herbert Herbert's appointed by Parliament um to, to basically spy on Charles, and you know, never, so they, they dismiss Charles's close servants and then install Herbert. But Herbert actually uh, comes to to sort of respect um, the, the king's stance. So with the bishop and with Herbert, um, Charles is escorted across St James's Park um, by guards. There's guards lining the entire route. A couple of stories about you know the, the fact that the drums are drumming that loud that uh, nobody can be heard. Uh, Charles apparently then speaks some words to one of his captors, uh, one of the officers with him, Colonel Tomlinson, um, and and makes reference to his wishes for his funeral. Uh, They enter Whitehall Palace. They go through some of the galleries to the king's bedchamber. And there, uh, that's where Charles has left uh, quite distressingly for four hours without news. Mm. So... So at this point, um, William Juckerson urges Charles to take some uh, food uh, and, uh, and some wine. Uh, initially, the king doesn't want to, um, but Juxon says, you know, kind of the cold weather and everything, you know, you, you really should. Otherwise, there's a risk that you might faint. Um, and that would give the wrong impression. Um the thing is that Charles has got two shirts on, which is another uh, um well-known fact or anecdote uh, so he wears two shirts to stop any shivering from the cold being mistaken as fear uh, there's a knock on the door he has different uh men um trying to uh prayer with him so they're offering to prayer with him um, these are men that have often debated religion with him uh he declines sends them away and then eventually uh the colonel hacker um arrives to take charge of charles and escort him to the scaffold there's there, there's a lot again a lot of debate about what happened in in those hours you know why why was there such a delay was it that parliament had to rush through emergency legislation to make it illegal for uh, charles's son to pro- to be proclaimed as king on the king's death because um you know it was all instant as soon as the king died uh, long live the king the new king is proclaimed uh, others say it's because uh, they didn't have an executioner and they couldn't get one uh, so the the state executioner the, the city executioner richard brandon had refused um, and then there was a, a bit of a, a few row over trying to find replacements um, so yeah there, there's a couple of, of different options as to why uh, but at any rate you know charles has then escorted through under the uh, Reuben ceiling of the banqueting house um, and then out under the scaffold. OK, so there is still a debate to this day, isn't there, of
0: who was the executioner? And one story I read was that Hugh Peters was actually involved somewhere along the lines. I don't know whether that's true or not, but apparently there are obviously he wasn't a very liked man, was he, Hugh Peters? Um, but no. he is seen at the beginning or around about the execution, and then all of a sudden he disappears when the execution is taking place, and then reappears again. Whether he's the one that held the head up, people were not too sure about. But yeah, just, I guess I, I read that yesterday, and I just wanted to to talk about that. But yeah, so but again, nobody actually really knew who dropped the axe, did they?
1: That that's right. Yeah. So the the headsman and his assistant. Um, so there's a number of people on the scaffold, actually, you know, you've got um, you've got um, army officers, you've got Juxon himself. Herbert Steers back in the banquet house. He, he's too distressed. Um, you've got the, um, the executioner's assistant, but then also scribes, you know, recording um, Charles's words. Uh, and the, the, the executioner assistant are both disguised. So there's, there's a lot of descriptions used. Some say that they were wearing sailor's clothes. Others that, that he had a grey beard. The executioner had a grey beard and was referred to as old grey beard. Um, wigs. Uh, the assistant supposedly had a cocked hat. Um, but, yeah, so they, they were disguised. Nobody knew who they were. Peters, I have heard the, the Hugh Peters one. Um, I think that stems a lot from the fact that when... The king's head was cut off. The assistant held the head up, but remained silent. And the argument there is that um, everybody would have recognized Hugh Peter's voice because he was an army chaplain. Um, you know, He preached a lot of sermons to a lot of people. Um, so people, I think that was the trail of thought there that, mm-hmm. that the man stayed silent. But, you know, there could have been numerous reasons for why uh, there was silence. You know, it could be could be that the the assistant just didn't wasn't familiar with protocol um or it could be that they just yeah maybe just didn't just decided not to you know so okay
0: so i understand that um the king did give a little speech but because the crowd was so far back they couldn't hear it but people on the scaffold would have done so do you know anything about the speech that
1: he made yeah so so as you say the the king knew that he wouldn't be heard by people um, down below. You know that the people held back by the soldiers, but uh, he knew that that speech would make its way out. And there were scribes there, as I say. So, um, so the king. I mean, in in a nutshell, it's quite a long speech. There's a lot of um, uh, discussion that you know with Juxon as well. You know, Juxon offers um, reminders to the king. So the king. Basically says that it's it's my duty to God first and to my country to clear himself as an honest man, a good king and a good Christian. So so he almost starts to set out a little bit of his position. Um, He says that he never did begin a war with the two houses of parliament. Uh, He never did intend to encroach upon their privileges. Um, He says that they began upon him um, by demanding the militia uh, control of the militia from him um he you know tells people take a look at the dates of the commissions you know you'll see that they began it not not i uh he he does say that uh you know he doesn't tar everybody with the same brush and that there were some what he called ill instruments between parliament and him that were the chief cause but he says um Yet for all that, God forbid that I should be so ill a Christian as not to say that God's judgments are just upon me. Um, and this is quite crucial. So what the king says at this point is many times he does pay justice by an unjust sentence. Uh, and he says, I will only say this, that an unjust sentence that I suffered for to take effect is punished now by an unjust sentence on me. Now, the King's referring to the Earl of Strafford with that, um, and Parliament had clamoured before the war uh, for the execution of Strafford, And the King had really um, misjudged the situation by uh, declaring publicly his support for Stratford. Um, so in effect, Parliament then proceeded by an act of attainder. Uh, and, and sorry to go off the topic here, but the only reason I'm explaining this is because this... This becomes quite crucial to why Charles, or, or Charles' psyche and, you know, what he's thinking at this mm. time. Um, Charles never forgave himself for signing the death warrant of Strafford. He was under duress, again, um, because the House of Commons voted in favour of Strafford's death. Charles went to the House of Lords and, and you know, pleaded for Strafford's life, but made the mistake of saying, look, whatever happens... I'm not going to sign that document. So the House of Lords felt, okay, well, we'll pass it in that case because the king's not going to uh, sign it, you know? Mm-hmm. So what, why would the House of Lords make a stand at, at a point when mobs were marauding around the city when the king wasn't going to sign anyway? <coughs> so, so yes, yeah, so the, the, the king was then boxed into a corner, um, you know, mobs, uh, you know, Storm the the, the palace at Whitehall, protesting, and in the end, for the safety of his family, he agrees, but never forgives himself. And as he says there, he really does believe that God, um, his you know has brought this sentence upon him.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so he that. basically blames himself then. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting view. Yeah, I like that.
1: Yeah. Okay, so he does. Oh, sorry, carry on. As you can see, there's a there's a few more um, little bits and pieces sort. So he then goes on to say that he's forgiven all the world, um, forgiven those that are the chief causes of his death. Um, he prays um, that this is not laid to their charge. Um, but then he does go on, and I think you, you made reference to it, actually, in, in some of the notes, that uh, he, he makes a speech about government and says, you will never do right, nor God will never prosper until you give god his due the king his due and he says by that my successors and the people their due and he says i am as much for the people as any of you you must give god his due um but then he says for the people i truly desire their liberty and freedom as much as anybody whomsoever but i must tell you that their liberty and their freedom consists in having government uh having of government those laws by which their life and goods must be their own. It is not for having a share in government. And I think that's, you know, clear. You know, the king doesn't believe in the level of cause, doesn't, doesn't support that. Neither do the army grandees, you know, Fairfax, Cromwell and, Knight, and Um, But he's making that clear. A subject and a sovereign are clean different things. Uh, he then says, you know, if he had given way to an arbitrary power, and had all of the laws changed according to the power of the sword, then he need not have come here. So basically what Charles says, and he actually says this himself, is I am the martyr of the people. You know, in, in the current situation with the rump parliament, an army, no house of lords, you know, complete change to the, the fundamental laws of the kingdom. He is the one that's standing up now for those ancient laws. Uh, Juxon then just reminds him, you know, maybe speak something about your religion. Um, and he says, you know, his conscience in religion is very, very well known to the world. Um, but he says he dies a Christian according to the profession of the Church of England as I found it left by my father. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing
0: that, that was cool. Um, so can I just ask? So he obviously gets executed, his head's. He's uh, severed from his body and a lot of people faint in the crowd, obviously, because uh, seeing that was probably horrendous. Um, but does he send a shockwave around Europe that Britain or England has executed their own king?
1: I think it does. Yeah. And and you mentioned earlier, you know, was it a bit of a rush job? And, and I think actually there was a little bit of a rush at the end because, um, you know, as I said, the Scots commissioners had, uh, declared categorically their opposition to the execution the french were sending a missionary emissaries but also the um, the dutch states had sent over envoys and they were in london at that moment actually at that on that uh, the day before the execution and the day of the execution um, they were meeting with general fairfax um, fairfax seems to be trying to go for a stay of execution Um, so that the dutch envoys say that um, fairfax promises to go to parliament uh, and put before them um, a request for a stay of execution Um, but yeah it it moves fast faster faster Mm -hmm. than fairfax and and the envoys and i think they are that they are very shocked yeah the the shock that it's gone ahead Um, a lot of people are savvy you know, so I think many had already begun to ingratiate themselves with the parliamentarians, but I think the shock was the manner of the king's death. So mm-hmm. it was done so publicly, um, it was decisively done, and I think that almost shocked a lot of people into accepting, you know, that it's happened, and the new government, you know, don't yeah. go up against them, really, you know, look what
0: they've done. And, than, and again, it, it doesn't end the war, does it? Because it carries on till uh, 1651. So, you yeah, know, it doesn't end anything, does it?
1: That's it. I mean, there's a there's a large groan in the crowd, which uh, William Dugdale, um, uh, you know, referred to in, in his writing. Uh, he was present. He said there was a large groan that he never wanted to hear the like of again. Uh, people, again, Charles Charles wasn't the first king to believe in divine right, not at all. Um, but I think, again, what what isn't often said is that a lot of his people did believe that by executing the God's anointed king, that the country would would have a lot of uh, hmm. miseries, you know, brought down on it. Um OK, so, Mark, you have offered
0: three books so far and you are working on another one. Uh, what you said to me on the phone uh, a couple of weeks ago. So tell us a little bit about your books, please, mate, because, uh, you know, I haven't read them yet, but I do plan on um, getting a couple of copies and reading them. So tell us about your books. Okay.
1: please. Uh, well, so the first one, um, <clears throat> Allegiance of Blood. So that that was a, a novel, a full novel that I'd self-published. That was the first book that I'd written. Um I mean, I'd all, I've always been passionately interested in the Civil War since since I first found out about it when I was 10 and I've always wanted to write about it. Legions of Blood was the culmination of that. So it opens um, after the Battle of Edgehill and closes um, at Alton in uh, 1643, December 43. That follows a fictional character um, through those events. Um, but there's also historical characters through all three books. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two, so the King's Spy and the King's Captain, uh, they are novellas, so shorter books. Um, same character, uh, sorry, Allegiance of Blood is one character. The King's Spy, the King's Captain are a different character. Um, and the third book that uh, you mentioned is the third in the in the series. Um, of the rebellion series okay three so that is a lot of work goes into because obviously like you said you've got a fictional
0: character but you're basing it around actual events aren't you so there must be a lot of work that goes into making sure you get this stuff correct is that right
1: yeah yeah definitely i mean uh, you know with fiction uh, you know there's there's always that argument that well you know you can be a bit you you can use a bit of artistic license i don't like to um you know i It seems to work well that sort of my fictional characters, uh, what happens to them, sort of weaves into the the chronology of the history Mm -hmm. quite well. And I like to keep that chronology accurate. Um, You know, there's only once that I'd uh, bent the truth slight, which I, you know, put in the forward of the king's spy yeah um but the king's spy and the king's captain they are um dealing with nearsby so at the end of the war so allegiance of blood is more the start mm-hmm. the king's spy is 1645 to 46 king's captain 1640 45 to 46 to um charles's escape from oxford which we covered earlier yep. book three is going to be precisely what we've just talked about as well about Carisbrook. um mm-hmm. and oh cool.
0: So Mark has also got a really good Facebook page, guys. And what I will do is put links to his books, to his Facebook page and everything up on the description below. Mark, I really, really enjoyed this. This is something I've been since I started my page nearly 12 months ago, wanting to talk about for a long time, because I do like the American Civil War, but the English Civil War is a very, very close run thing with the american Mm. civil war and i I, honestly mate you've been absolutely brilliant and i really do hope that we can do this again at some
1: point yeah i'd love to i mean hopefully you know hopefully that was exactly what you wanted and
0: oh it was definitely it was amazing mate honestly i really enjoyed it and uh, i mean i've learned a lot tonight by just listening to you telling the story so um thanks again mark and cheers
1: yeah no problem thoroughly i enjoyed it thanks darren thanks for talking to us